I invite you to turn this morning in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, third chapter of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We continue on in our study, beloved, and we come to the third chapter, looking at the opening four verses just this morning, trusting the Lord will instruct our hearts. That He will have a word for each of us here today. So let's read from Verse 1, just read the verses we're considering. Let us hear the Word of God. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass. And ye know. Amen. Let's still our hearts, and let's open up ourselves just with that longing that the Lord would address us and speak to us in the way that He sees fit today. Lord, Thou knowest, as we often confess, Thou alone knowest the need of every heart. And it is a constant wonder to the preacher to see how the Lord is pleased to take the same message and apply it to the varied needs of all of His people, regardless of the scale of a, of a congregation in terms of its numerical number, as it were. We understand, Lord, that Thy Word is a living Word. Thy Spirit is a living being. And He takes the Word and He applies it to each heart in a very personal and wonderful way. We pray for that activity today. Take the living Word and grant that the Spirit of God will apply it powerfully to hearts. We ask for the extension of Thy kingdom, the glory of Thy name, for the honor of Christ, that what will be done will bring the praise that Thou dost deserve. We ask, Father, therefore, that Thou wilt deliver us from everything that hinders, whether it be the world, the flesh, or the devil. Grant that Thou wilt establish Thy purpose and extend Thy kingdom here through the means that Thou hast appointed. Fill me now with Thy Spirit, therefore, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A straightforward reading of Acts chapter 17 will show you very clearly that this church that we're considering, or at least the, the letter addressed to this church, commenced in a blaze of persecution. They did not have an easy time of it when the Apostle Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, came into the city and brought the gospel to the hearts of men and women, those that were interested, those that were curious, and those that subsequently committed their hearts to Christ, as it were, immediately understood the, the, the affliction and the persecution that it would bring. And yet, in spite of all of this, the Lord was pleased to establish a church, to ground the church, to lay a foundation of a work that would continue on to bring glory and honor to the Savior for many, many years. Paul, as he had to leave because of that persecution, along with Silas and Timothy, had a desire to return, we understand that. And yet, because of the fact they did not have the means that we have today, it wasn't like Paul when he went to Berea, which was his next destination, or he moved on to Athens. It wasn't like he would call the, lift up the telephone and say, look, look, just keep hanging in there. I intend to get to you, but I'm not quite able. And it was difficult for them to communicate and get any message with any kind of haste to the hearts of men and women. And so, as he looked for opportunities to return... In the meantime, the enemies of the gospel, or certainly at least the devil, through some activity within the hearts of believers or through the influence of unbelievers, 
was beginning to cause this question to be raised in the minds of hearts and men, of men and women. Does Paul really care? I mean, he came in there, he brought this message, you have received it, but does he really care? I mean, he hasn't come back. And, and I think that even those new believers may have wondered in and of themselves, why doesn't he return? He gave indication that he intended to return and to help us. Paul has declared his love for them in chapter 2 in a number of ways. If we read just again verses 7 through 9, you can see that love as he reminds them of how he managed himself and worked amongst them in his time there initially. He says, We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. That's love, that's compassion. So being affectionately desirous of you, there's love again permeating the language we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, he's drawing their minds to recall our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. And this love that he had for them continued even after he left. And Paul continually reflects his love for them in various language, and he wants them to understand it. But that didn't help them while they were wondering, where is he? In the verses that we are looking at in chapter 3, I want us to see that in what Paul says here, he is speaking as one who is filled with the love of Jesus Christ. His affection toward this people is because of what has been done within his own life. He loves them because he has learned that love from the Lord Jesus. His heart for them is because of the heart of God toward him as reflected in the Son of God and his life and death and resurrection his behalf. And so when we read through this language and we're dealing with the text and we'll think of it in its context, of course, but I want you to see that Everything that moved Paul to say what he says here is because he has learned it from Christ himself. As it were, Paul got his education at the foot of the cross and his heart is moved out toward these people because he has been a recipient of the love of God in Jesus Christ. That, of course, should be reflected in us all. We're not trying to invent a new way of dealing with people we're seeking by the grace of God to reflect what we have received. Is that not the Christian life? That what we have received we want others to enjoy and to understand, so we're not trying to conjure up new ideas, new ways of living, new principles for life. We want just to reflect what we have received from the Lord. If we do that, we have done our duty. So when Paul writes, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and so on. He is just following in the steps of his master. We're looking then this morning at the pastoral care for a persecuted church. Pastoral care for a persecuted church. I think that summarizes something of the language here in these opening verses. And we'll see the affection, we'll see the accommodation, and we will see the anticipation that is reflected in these opening four verses. Note first then the affection here that comes forth from the Apostle Paul as this pastor, as it were, of these people, one who had been influential in their lives already. He shows this affection for them. Verse 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear. The idea of forbearance, of course, is enduring or suffering something. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, in relation to charity, that it beareth all things. And there's a forbearance that the Christian is to exhibit as the Spirit of God works out charity, genuine Christian love within his heart. Well, Paul here got to the end of his forbearance, and it wasn't in a sinful way, of course. It was in relation to he could no longer wait and leave these people in a condition where he was uncertain how they were going on with God, and he just needed to know that everything was well. The word wherefore that commences the portion takes us back into the context of what was previously said. And if we go back as far as verse 17 of chapter 2, we shall see that context when he says, But we, brethren, 
being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart. There you see his affection again, his love for them. He can, he can say it, he can speak it. He says, We endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. Repeatedly we endeavored to get back, but Satan hindered us. And then he went on to say, as we looked at last Lord's Day, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Paul is still answering the criticism that he didn't care about them, that he had left them and he never intended to return. That was what was beginning to be thought by those believers. But that was not the case. And explains, not just through the language of love that he's expressed already and as he expresses in verse 17 at the beginning, that he has this, this love for them and desire to abundantly uh, to, to see them with, with great desire. That's all love. That's all passion. That's all a longing within his soul. But then he explains why he couldn't get back. It was because Satan hindered them. We're not told the details about all of that, but Satan was actively preventing Paul from getting back, from fulfilling his word. And so then he gives another motive for them to understand why he so longed to get back and to help them. As I say, he, he may say all of these things. He may write a letter that says, look, I love you. I care for you. Was that not evident whenever I was there? I still love you and care for you. All of that as well, but, but give me evidence of it. And the best evidence he can give without being there in body is a theological evidence. It is, it is theological when he says, look, do you not understand that my love for you is not just something that is temporary and, and kind of based within the present. My love for you relates to eternity itself. What is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? So He give an, uh, gives an eschatological reason as to why He must love them. For, for they are evidence of His labor. And on that great day, that day of accountability before the Lord, they will stand if they endure, and His labor has not been in vain in the Lord. They will stand there as testimony and will, as we said last Lord's Day, supplement the very joy of glory itself. It's amazing. This whole idea of the judgment seat of Christ and that immediately coming to pass whenever the Lord returns is an important doctrine and a key one. And so even considering that and the theological basis for that that we looked at last Lord's Day, I want us just to underline it and not understand it. Because this is the best that Paul can do in terms of, of evidence, aside from what he then does, which is sending Timothy. This is, this is what he is saying. Look, I care for you in light of the return of Jesus Christ. You matter not just now, but in eternity itself. Others may labor solely for present reward, but not Paul. They were not just a significant part of his life in the present, but would be significant even when he stands before Christ at his coming. In Romans chapter 14, <clears throat> verses 10 through 12, Paul writes, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now you see what Paul's doing there. He's, he's trying to stop Christians from judging one another. And his whole purpose, or rather his, his ground for that is, do you not realize? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. His conclusion then is, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Preaching on this text, and after going through a list of supporting verses, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. I found it very striking. Now this is surely a doctrine which we tend to neglect, isn't it? We're interested in salvation, interested in forgiveness of sins, Interested in knowing we're not going to hell, 
And we seem to think that we're finished once and forever with all kinds of judgment, but we haven't. Though we are saved, we shall still have to appear before the judgment throne of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. It is possible for us to suffer loss. It is possible for us to know shame. How do I reconcile all this with heaven and glory? I cannot. I don't know. But it is a plain teaching of Scripture, and we neglect it at our peril. And nothing is more productive of antinomianism and loose living than the failure to realize that though we are the children of God, we still will have to appear before the judgment of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in the body. End quote. Paul was not ignorant of that. Paul understood that. And so the accusation that he didn't care about them, that he would just exercise his labor, labor among them and then run away and never think about them again, was, 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 was impossible for him to consider. People who bring this accusation don't live in light of eternity, he's suggesting, essentially. I live in light of eternity. What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For ye are our glory and joy. So then he says, verse 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, the evidence that that was in my heart and you were continually in my soul is when Timothy arrived on the scene. That brings us then to see his accommodation, the accommodation that is reflected by the Apostle Paul and what he says, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Here's his accommodation. Now, before we get to this, I want you to note what Paul does not say. Look at verse 1. We thought it good to be left at Athens alone. He does not say he received a heavenly vision that told him that he should stay in Athens alone or that he received a word from God that told him send Timothy back to Thessalonica. He didn't, he didn't receive that. He says, we thought it good. In other words, he looked and evaluated it in light of the kingdom in light of the circumstances, in light of everything that was before him. And he reasoned that this is the best thing to do. Now, beloved, I want you to, to, to just keep that in mind, that, that God actually expects you to use your brain as a Christian. He does. He expects you to look at things and make decisions in light of what you're facing. Now, Again, we have to be careful and make sure the Word of God is undergirding all of our thought. Or we end up, and it's always in my mind when I think of making bad decisions based on pure reason. I think of Elimelech because I, I really I see that within his heart. Elimelech looking at the matter. There's no bread here. There's famine in Bethlehem. I need to leave and go to Moab. But God had made it clear that his people were to be in the land that he had given them. And famine was never to be a reason to vacate that land. Elimelech just reasoned within himself and made that decision. So we need to be careful when we're using a reason that it has a strong foundation of Scripture, understanding what the revealed will of God is. Well, Paul has that. But he says, we thought it good. Paul had at times to think. And God didn't just open the heavens and come to him and say, Paul, here's what I want you to do. Or he get a, a, a fluttering feeling within his bosom and begin to realize this is what the will of God is. He had to evaluate it and use his mind, use his gray matter. There's lots of application there that I could get sidetracked on. But again, beloved... This is why you, you do take counsel from others, and not just 
I'm only going to respond if God tells me to do something or whatever. The people who speak in this hyper pious language that has no basis in the Word of God, never mind reason itself. I mean, they're using it generally as an excuse to avoid doing the right thing. Or because they're fearful and they don't want to do the right thing because, well, they're just, they're just afraid, overcome by fear. Well, none of that is very helpful. So, even when you, you, you just thinking coming to mind whenever Paul writes to uh, Philemon as well, he, 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 he presents the context of, of Onesimus leaving him and he says, for perhaps he left thee for a season, doesn't he? He says, perhaps. He's bringing in there the idea that we, we maybe can't know for absolutely certain what God was doing in all of this, but perhaps we can evaluate it and draw some sort, sort of conclusion about what we see is going on, even if it may not be infallible. Paul understood the need to look at the thing and try to figure out what the will of the Lord would be. And of course, as he says, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and so on and sends Timothy. He is showing what was going through his mind and heart while he, not knowing it, was being criticized for his motives. And so in an act of self-sacrifice, Paul decides he can't wait any longer and he sends Timothy to learn of the condition of this persecuted church. He was at Athens alone. And when you look at all the information, we know that after Paul, Silas, and Timothy established a church here in Thessalonica, they went to Berea. We know that. We're then told in Acts chapter 17, verses 13 and 15, but when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. They stay in Berea. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. So there's a group that come with him as he gets to Athens. And as they go back, it records receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed they departed. Paul arrives in Athens and says to the conducting party, look, when you go back, tell Silas and Timothy to get here as fast as possible. So Paul's in Athens. Silas and Timothy are to come to him. We don't have much detail about that. But we do know then that Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica and he was in Athens alone. You see that in verse 1? That's the whole idea. Timothy and Silas obeyed what Paul said when they heard word in Berea. They get themselves to Athens. When they arrive in Athens, I don't know how long they're there for, we're not told, but then Paul says, look, Timothy... Go back to Thessalonica. And Silas is sent into Macedonia as well to Philippi. What I want us to grasp then is that Paul was willing to accommodate even though it would cause him much grief and sorrow. He stands in a city, the city of Athens alone, and he sacrifices those labors that God had provided for him for the benefit of the church of Jesus Christ. Now you say, so what? Anyone would do that. What's the big deal? Well, it might be a big deal if you understood just how hard it was to be a Christian alone in any city in the Roman Empire. And to have people who were coming after you, not just content with the fact that you were in their city and you upset them and then you go to another city, but they're sending Jews to to hound you out of that city as well. You never know at what point they may arrive wherever you are and hound you out of that city, and now he's absolutely alone. We thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Paul embraced the fears that may have come into his heart with being alone in Athens. And I want you to realize that he, he, was, he was just a man of flesh and blood like any of us. And it would have been quite easy for him to be fearful as it is for any of us. In fact, as we'll see in just a moment, fear did grip his heart. 
but he embraced the loneliness anyway. You know, when I was looking at the psalm for today and going over it again in my own mind this morning, I thought, wow, (laughs) what a foundation the Christian has to embrace the seasons of loneliness. When they read the 22nd Psalm and know that the Lord Jesus himself experienced a loneliness that was unlike any other. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There upon the cross, Jesus Christ is in a loneliness that is beyond comprehension. Something that he had never in his humanity experienced ever before. And as a darkness comes over him, where even it feels like his very relationship with the Father is different. As I say, you go through the life of the Lord Jesus, he speaks, my Father, Father, I know thou hearest me always, Father, you always, but there on the cross, in the loneliness of the judgment of God upon a soul, it is not my Father, it is my God. There's a sense of an extraordinary feeling of loneliness and isolation that Christ is going through. And I thought how that may have been an encouragement to Paul. At any time he is sacrificing for the benefit of the church, giving himself for the benefit. What's your motive, Paul? Why leave yourself alone? Well, because the Son of God did that. He left himself alone on the cross for the church. We thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Sometimes the Lord does leave us alone. And no matter how lonely we may feel, no matter how isolated, no matter how it may bring you to a point of fearfulness and discouragement, I want you to just Remember the isolation of Jesus Christ on the cross and recall to your heart, your despondent spirit, I will never be that alone. I will never know the loneliness of being cut off from God and under divine judgment. You see here in his accommodation, the servant he sent, the servant he sent and the struggle he felt. The servant he sent, of course, is Timothy. Sent Timotheus, verse 2. Timothy was a young man who had a heart for Christ and for his people. But he was not as bold a character as Paul was. I think that's, I think there's enough evidence for us to conclude that from what we're told in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 Verse 10, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, Now if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. Now you will know that as Paul writes to the church at Corinth in the first epistle, there's tremendous division within that church. And Paul says to him, look, he says to them and underlines that if Timotheus comes, if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. He's instructing them, make sure you receive this young man and don't make another point of division and don't begin to attack him and don't begin to upset him. Receive him in the right fashion. Paul was concerned that what was going on in the church would negatively affect Timothy. So in one sense, he's nothing like Paul. I don't think Paul was ever the kind of person who was really put off by things, at least generally. It seemed he always was able to rally and face all of the attacks and deal with all of the things that may have been confronting him. But Timothy was, was, was not like that. Now, again, even when he writes to the, 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 the personal epistle that he writes to Timothy, you will know in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he, he says, Let no man despise thy youth. Well, I mean, 
Timothy actually wasn't that young of a man whenever, whenever Paul's writing this. But, but the problem was this. Ephesus had been used to Paul. Paul had been there for three years. They were used to Paul. And when Timothy comes, he seems relatively young by comparison. And he is saying, look, don't let anyone despise your youth. You may not be me. You're not as old as me. That, all of that may be true. But don't let anyone despise your youth, Timothy. Don't let that get you down. I can't imagine that would ever have bothered Paul, even whenever he was unconverted. As I say, I think they're very different characters, but in, this, in another sense, they were very, very similar, especially in heart. When Paul writes to those at Philippi, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, he says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. I have no man like-minded. I couldn't send anyone else who's more like me to see how you're getting on. Timothy, when you meet him, well, you will see that his heart is just like mine. Here he describes him in three ways. He calls him a brother, a minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. A brother. Yes, our brother. The cross brings a tremendous sense of equality within the church. We are brethren. In fact, you will see, I think there's 17 times Paul says brethren in this epistle, and three times it's just brother like it is here. So he, he talks about the brethren all the time. He, he, he relates to the church on these terms and understanding that, that we're brothers. Which brings what to mind? Family. We're all family here. And when, when Timothy, I sent Timothy, he was family. He was, he was family to me and he's family to you. He is our brother. In chapter 4, you will see the difference that it makes that we have brethren in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 9. He says, but as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you. You understand it. Why do you understand it? For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. We'll get to that text in due course. But you can see the assumption that is made. You know. You understand brotherly love. Why? Paul makes a great assumption there dealing with new believers. How, how does he understand it? You're taught of God. It's like Paul is saying, essentially... You know, I have a work to, to teach you and instruct you and, and help you understand many things. But, but there are certain things that, that God works immediately within the heart of everyone genuinely converted. They love the brethren. They love the brethren. They, 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 they are part of a family. They see that family and they love the family. That doesn't mean to say that at times they don't always, you know, or that they always get on. At times they don't. There's, there's issues and he addresses that, you know, in 1 Corinthians and other letters. But we are, we are brothers. We are brothers. Timothy, our brother. Not only a brother, he's a minister of God. That is, he's a man set apart by God for the purpose of ministering to the souls of men, not merely set apart by man, by his own desires, his own longings. A minister of God. These are the kind of men we need. Ministers of God. If I wasn't preaching what I'm preaching tonight, I might say more on this. But there's much that's instructive with relation to this term, the minister of God, from the life of John the Baptist. Especially as it relates to this sense of belonging to God and God setting apart men. Timothy was such a man. Wasn't a career man. I know. God had called him. Our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, as John Gill notes, he was a laborer, not a loiterer in the Lord's vineyard. He labored, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. You know, and I thought about that. And, I, and you see the commendation that really is being reflected toward Timothy. And that is something 
that is to be remarked upon, of course. Paul is commanding Timothy. He's elevating his character and he's saying, Look, I sent this brother, minister of God, and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. I sent him to you. But in another sense, it is tremendous in its reflection of Paul himself. The great apostle. The mighty man that he was. Looks at lowly Timothy, this young man that he was just just essentially barely into manhood whenever the church says, look Paul, here's a good young man and he takes him along with him and he's recommended to the grace of God and he goes along with the Apostle Paul. I mean, there, there's a tremendous degree of distinction between these two individuals. But what does he call him? Our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. He stands beside me. And I'll tell you, it's nearly more remarkable that Paul would say this than it would be true of Timothy. There are many, many men who are laborers in the gospel. Many young men, let's, let's just put it that way. Many young men, like Timothy, who are newer to the work of God. There are many of those men. And there are far fewer of the older men who will actually look at them and consider them fellow laborers. And lift them up as men who stand alongside them in the gospel of Christ. It speaks of Paul's character. Paul encouraged young men in the work of God. He didn't want Timothy running around thinking he was lesser than him. See that? He did not want Timothy running around thinking he was lesser than Paul. He is a fellow laborer. He is our brother. A minister of God. So, that's the servant he sent. The struggle he felt. What was the struggle he felt? I'm always struck by Paul's initial experience when he went to Corinth. And what happened in that city, at least in relation to his own experience. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, and this will make sense in just a moment about him being in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's how he arrived into Corinth. In weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul? Weakness, fear, trembling? And Luke records in the book of Acts, chapter 18, that this all kind of comes to a point, comes to a head in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, when he actually has to get a word from heaven that he was unable to, to minister to his own soul and get himself out of the doldrums and move his heart away from the fear. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Paul was, was, was bound by this fear, whatever it was, the trembling that was gripping a soul in Corinth to the point that we read, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Be not afraid, but speak. Paul's fear is in relation to the temptation to stop preaching. This is Paul. Paul. He's actually in Corinth pondering the, the, the possibility of not preaching. He's filled with fear. And it's the fear of man. The fear of man. Now let's just step back. He's in Corinth. Well, how did he come to be in Corinth? Well, by a process. He first, you remember, Macedonian call, comes to Philippi. <laughs> Tremendous affliction occur there, many stripes laid upon him, imprisoned, but a church is established and he goes on rejoicing in the Lord. Comes into Thessalonica again, tremendous persecution, but a church is, a church is established. He moves away, comes to Berea, a work is beginning there, but these Jews persecute him right to Berea, and he, he moves away from there. He comes into Athens. He preaches there. 
comparatively not much success in relation to some other places. There were some who believed, of course, but there doesn't seem to be as much that happens there. And he comes then from Athens into Corinth, and this is how he feels. But it's not just the stages. He was in Philippi, was persecuted, and told to be silent, but he didn't. He wasn't that way. And it was the same in Thessalonica. He was, he was being challenged to be quiet, but he wouldn't. And the same in Berea, no doubt. And then he comes to Athens, and he comes, right in Corinth. The one thing that changes in all of that is that when he was in Athens, he was alone. And Philippi is with Silas, and they can suffer together and sing hymns at midnight. Praise unto God. Thessalonica again. He's got companions with him. Berea. He goes to Athens. Silas and Timothy come and meet with him, but then he sends them away again immediately. And he's in Athens himself. And I'll tell you, I'm sure the devil sought. The devil saw the lack of Christian companionship and made a concerted effort to attack Paul. I can get him now. And then with the lack of fruit, perhaps, you add that in. He walks into Corinth, perhaps feeling like a defeated man. I can't say dogmatic. We're not told in the specifics, but I'm trying to pull the picture in your mind and to show you that this man was brought to a point in Corinth where he was almost ready to quit. And in part, I see a connection with the fact that he had sacrificed Silas and Timothy from his own company. He sent them away. That's because they were not with him. He goes through this dark period. But Paul did it anyway. Because he would do it again. <laughs> Later on he would do it. He would send Timothy away and so on. It wasn't, didn't stop him from doing the right thing. It was an act of sacrifice, therefore, accommodating the needs of the church, sending Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. And just to underline, no matter how helpful a young person may be in this church or an older person, it matters not how helpful they may be if they can maximize their usefulness somewhere else in the kingdom of Christ, let them go. Send them away. Will suffer the loss of their presence. Will grieve over the fact that they're no longer here doing whatever it was that they may have done that we may feel is irreplaceable. But if they're maximizing their usefulness in some other part of the vineyard, may God be with them. Send them away. What an awful condition. You can imagine the church at Antioch. Imagine, and even Paul's reflecting what Antioch did. Antioch, the church is growing, it's thriving, and no doubt in part because Paul's there and Barnabas. But when it comes to that point of reaching the nations, the Holy Spirit does not come and take lesser, lesser men and women out of the church. He comes at, I will have the cream of the crop. I will take Paul, I will take Barnabas, and send them to the work we're on to, I've called them. And no doubt they felt, Paul, Barnabas, really? Do we want to let go of Paul and Barnabas? This whole work is here in large part because of their ministry. It's reached its point that it has because of their ministry. Do we want to get rid of Paul and Barnabas? When they had fasted and prayed, they let them go. They sent them out. The blessing of God. That's the way to do it. I trust God will raise up young men, especially 
And we will have the privilege, though it may hurt to see them go, the privilege of sending them with the blessing of the triune God upon them. We have his anticipation, finally. His anticipation. Because in the latter part of verse 2, through the end of verse 4, you will read, The whole reason Timothy was sent to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. Paul always anticipated the persecution of the people of God, and he prepared them for it. And here, as he begins dealing with this whole idea of persecution and anticipating that persecution, he says that he sent Timothy to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. The word establish is the idea of grounding them, preventing them from tottering. Christians totter. They do. Like a lamp that's too tall and the base is too light, just a little top of the touch at the top and the thing begins to wobble. And Christians are like that. New believers particularly. The slightest touch from the devil and they begin to totter and wobble. And Paul's heart is that they might be established, grounded, cemented into the gospel. This was all the apostles' burden. Just one example, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, he uses the same word when he says, But the God of all grace hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish. That's the word, strengthen, settle you. But not only to establish them, but to comfort them. The word here for comfort is that parakleto, it's the calling alongside. It's the, it's the idea of standing beside. And the noun form is... Some of you may know when you hear that word that the paraclete, with reference to the Holy Spirit, whose work is to be the comforter of the people of God, according to John 14. And so the paraclete comes alongside his people and he comforts them continually. And this is the work, therefore, of Timothy, that he was to be a conduit of the Spirit of God directly to the church to comfort them, to come alongside them and to comfort them concerning their Faith. And what's the reason? That no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. I don't want anyone to move. The word moved there again, a very interesting word, only found once in the New Testament, has the idea of the wagging, the wagging of a dog's tail. Of course, because of that graphic image that it brings, there's all sorts of ideas as to what the word kind of really means as you begin to mine it out. But Without getting into all of that, the essential understanding is this. It's in contrast with being established. You don't want anyone to be moved. You don't want anyone wagging back and forward. You don't want any instability. We want them to be established that no man should be moved by these afflictions. It's wonderful to see God's people standing. Standing. In Christ, standing in their afflictions, standing with joy, regardless of what the enemy seeks to assault them with. No matter what is coming their way, they stand. That's why, listen young people, that's why always appreciate and value the aged brethren and sisters in the church, always. Because they've stood. And you get alongside them and you ask them, they may confess to not standing as well as they would have hoped to have stood and not really going on perhaps always the way they would have wanted, but they're still there. They're still there. They're still standing. They're here. They're, they're worshiping the Lord. They're rejoicing in His goodness. They're contributing where they can in the kingdom of Christ. They're standing. Never, ever think that a light thing. You know not whether a Demas lingers within the heart of any of us. Not moved. Established. Just to say again, this, this is why you respect the word of the older brethren. Because they have stood for years. And that's, that's your goal. That's your goal in life. It's not happiness. 
though I trust God will give you much happiness and joy, but far more important than any of those desires that may first spring to mind is that you stand, and you know the older you get, that's the one thing you, you just hope for, that you would be, you'd still be standing at the end. Always comes to mind whenever I, when anyone, any of the Lord's people step into eternity having a good testimony. They've done it. (laughs) They've essentially done it. They have got to the end faithfully. That is not a small thing. All hell has broken loose against them at various times too. Try to prevent that from happening. So that's your goal, young people. That, that's your goal. Your goal is to get to the end. And I don't know when that will be for any of us. It may be when you're 25. It may be when you're 85. It may be when you're 105. But that supersedes everything else. And so when you see those that have stood the test of time, you want to learn from them, listen to them, understand what helped them and what hindered them. The Lord has certainly prepared us for the afflictions, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. Paul, why do you say that? Why do you go on to say, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto? Well, for one passage... Jesus said in John 16, 33 to his disciples, These things I have spoken unto you, that you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Outside there's all sorts of tribulation. In you there's peace. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that's very comforting. He has overcome the world. Which begs the question, why not then suppress the tribulation? Why not, Lord? Why not suppress the tribulation? If you've overcome the world, suppress the tribulation. But no, no. He has willed it. He has willed it. He sovereignly wills it for us. Because it's glorious to Him to see, to see the tribulation afflict the soul and the soul in Christ stand fast. That's not the whole, the whole argument around Job. Hast thou considered my servant Job? Well, actually, <laughs> I have. You put a hedge around him. You put a hedge around him. I, I would have him if I could. The Lord says, okay. Do whatever you like. Just don't take his life. Whatever you want. Try. Why? Why? Why does that happen? Now, the end, God is glorified. He is magnified. Satan did his level best, as it were, to try and destroy Job. And he stands, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That no man, I'm sending Timothy, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. That's not step 45 of a 50-step plan of teaching Christians. It is right at the beginning. You've come to Christ. You will be afflicted. Verse 4, For verily when we were with you, we told you before, that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass, and ye know. Paul emphasized this in his ministry. We know this. A summary of his ministry as he he makes his way back in his first missionary journey. What's the summary of his ministry? Acts 14.22 Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. That's the summary. That's Did he deal with the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone? Did he establish them in the doctrine of of, of sanctification? Of course he did. But it all encompasses around this. What is it to be justified? It is to know Christ and continue in the faith. 
And how is that sanctification manifested? That through much tribulation we enter the kingdom of God. That we are purged and we are cleansed and we are separated and made more like unto Jesus Christ as the Lord brings tribulation into our lives. Persecuted church. In some way or other, every church is persecuted. The devil's tactics vary depending on the season and the circumstances. He works within the boundaries of the sovereignty of God. If he could have the world in utter chaos like it was prior to the flood, he would have it there. But he can't. So he works with what he has. Presently in America... It's not great persecution to the degree that we're scared to meet here for fear of the authorities coming in and ending our lives. We're not there. So he works within he works within the boundaries of what he's got. So what has he got? Well, he has distractions and materialism and ambition and employment and he has whatever he can use. As well as the sense of, well, look at the way the world is today. You know, everyone today is saying there is no God and let's Let's persecute them there. That you're a fool to believe the Bible from cover to cover. You use that. And every other means he will utilize to torment the church, always tormenting the church. I told you before. We should suffer tribulation. Time is gone. I end with this one point of application. In light of this week on our VBS, it was very clear, it is very clear from this passage that the kind of evangelism that goes into a city, goes into an area, preaches the gospel, walks away and doesn't care about the people who are influenced or affected. It was not the evangelism that Paul was about. He longed to get back and to strengthen the disciples. And in all your interactions with the children, with the parents, whoever it may be that comes in this week, if the Lord opens up doors, connections, friendships, conversations. If hearts are changed, lives are touched, follow it up. Follow it up. That's what Paul so wanted to do. And that's what we must therefore do. As the Lord enables and gives the opportunity. May the Lord grant it for his name's sake. Let's bow together in prayer. Let me just say to you, Christian, struggling, you have your battles, you have your sorrows, the Lord sees every tear. Though you may not understand all that's going on in your life, in your circumstances, and you're often brought to a point of asking why, the love of the Lord Jesus far exceeds the love of Paul. And nothing the devil does can hinder him in any way. So whatever sorrows he has permitted in your life, embrace them as gifts from his hand. Pray for more strength. That you may stand as a living testimony at the end 
Paul would write to Timothy, the persecutions that befell him in Iconium and Lystra and so on. But out of them the Lord delivered me. Out of them all the Lord delivered me. Father, we pray that thou wilt help us to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And we pray where we see others afflicted and others struggling, that we would be quick to support, to strengthen, and to keep them from tottering and from falling. Make us conduits of the Spirit of God to come alongside and establish the brethren. Help us especially with our young people, not with criticism, not with harshness, not with a spirit of finding fault, but with a care and concern and a love for their souls. They may totter, they may stumble, but so did we, and so may we yet. We pray our hearts with compassion would go out to them. We ask, Lord, that thou wilt use our lives to help them every step of the way. Help us to help one another, knit our hearts together in the way only the Spirit of God can do, and grant even this week that we will enjoy favor from heaven, and that thou wilt grant us the privilege not just of presenting the gospel, but being able to follow up, to go out after those contacts that we've made, and to speak to them yet again and again about the Lord Jesus and the glory of God's dear Son bearing sin on his own body on that tree. Part us in thy fear and favor, and grant to us blessings and help even as we enjoy one another's fellowship. May we return here this night to enjoy again the presence of God according to thy will. Hear prayer, for we ask it all in Jesus' precious name.